Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'll be talking with Kate Paul about her new book, Materializing Literacies in Communities, Uses of Literacy Revisited. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. Um, on this episode, we're going to be talking with Kate Paul, uh, who is a professor at the University of Sheffield, about her new book, Materializing Literacies in Communities, The Uses of Literacy Revisited. So welcome to the podcast. Yes, welcome. Um, and thank you for asking me, Dave, as well. Um, This is a really fascinating book and ties in both to a kind of long historical tradition, um, obviously the the name uses of literacy um, in the the subtitle, um, but also is quite methodologically innovative and is dealing with um, lots of issues in the kind of contemporary world as well. So it's a really fascinating text with, you know, looking backwards, looking forwards, looking into the present. I think before we start the discussion, it'd be great to know a bit about you, your academic background and um the, the the sort of history of the book and, and how you came to write it yeah well thanks for asking me that i mean basically i had a slightly unusual academic background is that i wasn't always an academic so after doing an english degree i kind of rebelled against kind of elitist stuff and became an outreach adult literacy worker on an estate in hammersmith and fulham in london working for the council for racial equality and i actually really liked being an outreach worker, um, but it got quite difficult as adult literacy got more policed. And I also at the same time was editing a journal called Critical Quarterly with Colin McCabe and Brian Cox, which in retrospect was an amazing opportunity. And I don't think I was quite aware of what was going on. I mean, this was in the wake of the Cambridge trauma that Brian Co- um, that Colin McCabe experienced. And I was also a part, I sort of experienced that. And I think I had a real encounter with kind of culture as ordinary, but through my work, and then only returned to being an academic later in life. So I suppose what I ground my work on is really being very um, absorbed in community literacies in practice, as well as being absorbed in the kind of Raymond Williams culture as ordinary stream of kind of Cambridge English, which I was also involved in, but also rejecting a kind of hierarchy of literary texts. And I think what I've always loved about Hoggart's work is that that embodied and felt encounter with text was also about encounters with cultures. And at Goldsmiths, obviously, you've got the link with Hoggart. And I feel that Hoggart still has something to say now about ways of doing literacy in communities that aren't mainstream middle class I suppose in one sense I've always really tried to counter middle class notions of what literacy is and and the kind of dominance of like the picture book or books as opposed to lots of other more complex forms of meaning making Um, and I kind of really enjoy being in spaces that kind of give space to those sorts of ideas. I I think there's there's immediately three things that come to mind from what you've said that I suppose the first thing is kind of pinning down um, the importance of Hoggart and and maybe kind of you could say a little bit about Hoggart's original uses of literacy and, and how that relates to your book. 
Yeah, I think Hoggart is, um, I think it's an extraordinary book because it's written from the inside out. So it's written from a kind of almost phenomenological experience um, of life. So he's writing just randomly, I've opened pages of working class life, whatever changes there have been is still close to the ground. And he talks about the experience, the closer to the groundness, the embodiedness of growing up in South Leeds. And for me, Hoggart is trying to do something with writing, which Stuart Hall has called a kind of sociological imagination. But at the same time, it's, it's got a literary feel. It's written, but from an imagination that's different from a kind of mainstream understanding of where culture is situated. And I still feel it's a text that can be revisited over and over, particularly now when places like Rotherham are so demonised in the press. He's, he's, he's writing a different kind of text about the experience of growing up in this space, but writing it with empathy. And it's a different kind of academic writing as well. It's... Um, it's much more felt and it's textual. Um, and I'm working actually at the moment with Richard Stedman Jones on a piece of work which is reading the books in local literacies, which is a text from the New Literacy Studies. And I think we're very interested also in representations of the real and how literary qualities in Hoggart, I think, of representing his life are kind of under-understood within new literacy studies. So I, it kind of brings together different strands in one text in a way that I think is still very innovative and I think has resonances for the field now. You, you mentioned Rotherham there, uh, which is, is the case study or the, the site um, for your book. Could, could you sort of explain where, where it is, why it's interesting, maybe give a little bit of um, background and an explanation about the place? Well, I started working in Rotherham about 10 years ago, and mainly because it actually has a lot of very settled communities that are really interesting about culture and heritage. Um, I worked in initially through an HRC grant with a group of families to look at everyday stories and objects in a project called Every Object Tells a Story, Story in 2007. And I think what I was interested in was the heritage of the mines and the steelworks and also the communities that had migrated in the 50s and 60s from Pakistan and the way in which Rotherham actually is a town incorporated a lot of different cultural kind of bits of stuff. And it seemed to be a very generative space. At the same time, Charlesworth wrote his book around the mid to late 90s about Rotherham, which was actually quite a challenge to me because I actually found it quite a depressing book. I was working in quite a generative way with communities to look at literacy practices in Rotherham. We have been hit quite hard by the J report since last August, and I think one of the difficulties of doing research in Rotherham at the moment is that people's perceptions are quite skewed by something that has really upset an awful lot of people, both within Rotherham and outside. I think it's a very serious situation we're in. But at the same time, there's hope. And I think one of the things we're trying to do in Rotherham at the moment is to create these conditions for better imagined communities to be forged. So working with a lot of girls' groups about safe spaces for women and girls. We're trying to develop ways of working across communities. We're trying to develop, with support actually from the DCLG, a kind of much more cultural approach to valuing what is going on in Rotherham. And for me, Rotherham is a site, it could be any other place, but it's a site of creativity as well as being a site where I feel that we can be 
there is a usefulness to the work we can do. And I'm still very sceptical about universities, whether they're useful. Um, but I think in the current projects I'm doing, the Imagine Project, the kind of co-produced model is enabling me to see how we can become more useful in a town which has had quite a lot of ups and downs. I would actually say that I've learned a lot from Rotherham and I find it a very generative place. I don't want it to be seen as something in need of me. I think I find I'm in need of Rotherham. <laughs> That's really interesting. Mm. And, that, and, and you've raised a lot of um, both kind of methodological but also um, theoretical um, issues in, in, in what you've said there. I, I guess one of those theoretical issues which you touched on in your introduction is this idea of literacy as a social practice and you know you talked about how this is um, beyond um, the book mm. beyond you know a particular class understanding of what it is to be to be literate and, and I suppose maybe you could give an example of this through um, a practice you talk about in the book which is the practice of walking mm. and I think one of the things that's interesting about walking is that it's been taken over by a particular group of psychogeographers. Um, t- I was quite rude about them in the book. They tend to be, uh, and there's also the kind of Alan McFarlane's, the Tin Ingalls. There's a kind of trope of the often solitary male psychogeographer exploring the council status or exploring the hills as a kind of discovery. Whereas in Rotherham, we did a lot of walking with young people with the youth service. And the walking was quite situated through the young people's perspectives of what's going on. So I think one of the things that I'm interested in is how walking as a practice can resituate oral storytelling. Um, and the young people, I remember them t- taking me around a housing estate with a group of shops and kind of the stories that then emerge through that process. So I see walking as a kind of starting point for kind of ethnographic exploration. And I quite like Lindsay Hansley's work on estates where she kind of walks and then from the walk, the stories emerge. And I, I think there, is, there are repositories of narratives and meaning-making and stories that move. Um, and one of the things that's interesting about working in Rawmarsh, for instance, is that a lot of the young people talk about things like coal is in my blood and underneath we've got the mines. But at the same time, they're moving and developing ideas that are on the move in terms of um, changing and intergenerational shifts and I think walking kind of surfaces some of those literacies um it's it's really interesting how how often those kind of on the cusp feelings of what's below the ground what's changing and what's going to happen I'm quite interested in past present and future um and we done we did a project called portals to the past where we made films about better imagined pasts in Walmarsh. And again, that was all about we walked through the park and we imagined the Vikings at the same time. We told stories that were contemporary and then we redid bits of the past we didn't like. So we did redid the Miners' Strike and the World Cup of 2010. <laughs> and yeah, it, 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 it's a good example, I think, of almost a you know, quite straightforward practice mm. that's taken for granted is every day of walking. Then, as you say in the book, kind of points us to the role of space in kind of shaping language and shaping identity, and shaping mm. how we represent things. Mm. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And this, that's, yeah. Sorry, go on. No, that's fine. Because uh, this links to um, one of the things you do in the third chapter of the book, which is around um, kind of reinforcing this enlarged understanding of literacy. Uh, mm. and, and I suppose you perhaps draw a contrast between 
um, literacy in schools, and then what we might think of as almost kind of everyday examples of literacy in the library, in prayers, in bedtime stories. Um, yeah, I think one of the things that I'm still obsessed by is a kind of understanding. I mean, my thesis was called Ephemera, Mess and Miscellaneous Piles, Texts and Practices in Families. And I think it's understanding the lens from which you look at things. So I'm always interested in how, when you work in contexts that are outside school, how do people perceive communicational practices? So when we were working, for instance, with Fisher um, men and young people fishing, communication was actually not about language because if you talk, you, you couldn't fish, but it was about a different kind of practice. We've done projects like Languages Talisman where young people actually made films about a world without language. And you realise that they saw things very differently. I think sociolinguists and literacy scholars produce kind of lines around what they're looking at and then look at that in discipline. Whereas if you go into the everyday, it dissolves those disciplinary boundaries. Ruth Finnegan writes really well about this in her book, The All and Beyond, doing things with words in Africa, and she kind of deconstructs ideas of what is literacy and language through her data. And I think that's what I find exciting, is to learn from the young people about how they see communication happening. So with the textiles, I, I realised there was a link between actual sewing but also a link between oral storytelling and textiles and the blurring of that in people's minds was interesting it wasn't something to discount and it's those kind of not discounting practices that then surfaces other kinds of literacy and I'm still really concerned that I think sociolinguistics and mainstream literacy research doesn't seem to question its own lens as much as I think it should so I guess it's about questioning the lens from which you're looking at a thing that's happening. I, I'm I'm quite interested in how this plays out in individual projects. I mean, you, you mentioned um, a couple there, but um, reason to write and how to drown a blondie are, I think, are good examples of, of not just the enlarged um, understanding of literacy, but also uh, I think a kind of a battle about aesthetics itself and its relationship okay. to culture. Mm. So I wonder if you could say a bit about those two projects and how they relate to this. Um, yeah, this I mean, a reason to write was interesting because that was kind of um, a project I did in the Dern Valley in a mining uh, village in a school which had an input from a group of artists. And I guess part of it was giving up on clever academic ideas about what we thought was important and salient. Um, and that led to the picture of Declan dancing, which was kind of in between space. And that then led to an interest in, well, how do people, what, where do people place in their importance? If aesthetics is about what we think is important. And from Eagle, Eagleton's understanding of aesthetics is that it kind of came out of the mercantile classes in the 18th century as a kind of way of solidifying privilege and kind of making high status things, more high status by a kind of association with beauty. And I suppose it's kind of cultural materialist. I'm quite aware of that um, tying of aesthetics into certain kinds of privilege. Um, I think the thing that I loved about How to Drown a Blondie was that the that was wonderfully reversed in that story. So the aesthetic of the blonde, blue-eyed girl became the aesthetic of the evil Girl, and like in Tony Morrison's Bluest Eye, blue eyes became code for the kind of the other. And I think it's that flipping and reversing. 
Um, and I think aesthetic categories are quite interesting because it, they actually guide you to certain kind of ways of knowing and thinking. Um, and I have drawn quite a lot on Toni Morrison's work to make sense of some of what's going on in, on in Northern in terms of a recognition of what it feels like. Um, but also, again, aesthetics kind of brings in a broader understanding of what is important. So a bit of dance a kind of structuring of a, of a narrative becomes more salient. And I'm quite interested in developing the idea of everyday aesthetics. I still feel I haven't quite got there with everyday aesthetics. I think there needs to be a more precise language description for what that might be. But I'm certainly interested in making aesthetics something that we talk about when we're looking at everyday cultures. Yeah, I suppose it's difficult because there's a kind of boundary-drawing demand yeah. um, from yeah. Yeah. those elements of aesthetics that are more... Uh, associated with with high cultural forms. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the, that kind of, I suppose, process of, of boundary drawing um, <laughs> it, it is constantly disrupted by the examples you give of, of the stories, the projects, the interventions, the practices. Um, mm-hmm. And one story you keep returning to throughout the book is reunion. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm interested in the kind of the story of this story particularly how it relates to the possibility of, of imagining different worlds, different scenarios, uh, and, you know, um, imagining perhaps, you know, a kind of a, a better social situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, reunion was quite accidental in the sense that we had this research funding from the HRC Collective Communities Programme for a project called Languages Talisman. And the way we did a lot of our projects was that we worked with a youth service, particularly a youth worker called Marcus Herkin, who when we'd have a meeting to plan the projects, young people would show up and I often thought well what are the young people doing at this meeting and of course they were part of the project and emerging from that Marcus said there's a group of girls in Walmarsh who I'm working with why don't you come and meet them and we sat together in a kind of room in a in the school Walmarsh Community School and the story actually kind of emerged quite fast and it became clear that there was a story to tell about partly about grandparents and Second World War, but also the practice of storying was something we just wanted to continue. So we met every week, mostly in the park, actually, after a while, and told stories for a whole summer. And I think reunion was just one of the many stories, but I think what happened was that that became salient because the girls wanted to shape it into something, and Chloe, one of the girls wanted to draw the illustrations. But then when we reanalyzed it and worked with it more closely, we could see that within the story lay elements of concerns both about the presence, so we had somebody on benefits who didn't have much money. We had the memories of the grandparents looking down at Sheffield and seeing the bombs. We also had something about hope. And I think one of the things about a lot of these mining communities is the intergenerational patterns continue and it's hard to make sense of that for the now in terms of future and past and reunions seem to look at those themes of past present and future but in a way that was again authored by the young people and through their lens and I'm constantly trying to return to that lens of what what people see to be important rather than what the university sees to be important so reunion like the bluest eyes like almost a mode of reading through so you use that as your lens to understand other things i think that's why i think it's important to me it's like a lens and that that idea about the lens comes through really strongly in 
co-producing films uh, mm-hmm. you know both we're sort of beyond metaphor here you know it is literally mm-hmm. uh, a lens and uh, and it kind of carries on that uh, that idea about the continuities in Rotherham um, mm-hmm. and the struggle to kind of change and break mm-hmm. the way it's been represented so so what was the story of co-producing a film and again it's interesting that this ties into this expanded idea of literacy I think with the film it was interesting because we had a, a large group of young people all showing up every Monday who were quite angry. This was about six months before the J report, and they were angry because police weren't listening to them, and they were angry because they didn't have a news service provision. And it seemed incredibly chaotic and bitty and bumpy. And then one evening, Steve, one of them said that they wanted to use shadow, shadow puppets. It was a long chat about how we're going to give our message to government because we were commissioned to do a film for government about young people who felt disconnected from government. And they came up with the idea of shadow puppets and then Steve Poole, an artist I work with, brought in these shadow puppets. And what was interesting is we had about 45 minutes of total messing around and then a scripted moment, 10 minutes, of a very scripted, carefully constructed drama of not being listened to but by the police and we produced the film um, as a story and then the young people still wanted to write more things over the top so they wrote scripts about how they didn't feel listened to and this went to government the really interesting thing is government never actually watched the film but what we did look at afterwards in the film was a kind of very clear message about how they didn't feel listened to. The co-production was more in that kind of jumpy process of different forms coming in, so shadow puppets, scripting a story, scripting messages. And it was very much driven by a moment. And I think one of the things that's interesting about co-producing with young people is that it was like a kind of bricolage and a kind of assemblage that came together and then dispersed. And I now look back on that and think they should have watched that film because they were saying such important things. But at the same time, it was a bumpy ride. And they're trying to write about film at the moment, me and Steve Paul. And I think one of the things we recognise about co-produced film is that it's a very uneven experience, because the aesthetics of film are so strong that if you're kind of doing something with a group, it can look very messy, and it is very messy. Um, So I think the message from the film was that co-produced film is a kind of flawed medium, but at the same time... There are messages in there that we couldn't have done as adults and we couldn't have have conveyed. So it's quite an urgent film, um, which is about we're not being listened to and which is, of course, what the Jay Report said. So I kind of feel like there was some prescient messages there. um, And I now feel concerned again that that that's never seen. And and in terms of not not just the the sense of the young people not being listened to, but in in the Mm. sense of... Um, how Rotherham is is represented? How how um, how were they doing things differently, or what what were they sort of pointing out? What the time or now? Um, in in the film and, and well, I think what they were saying in the film was that we don't have anywhere to meet. Mm. We don't feel safe. We they had a story about being at knife point from the police. They were, also had a story about somebody who they felt scared of, who was an older man who was definitely kind of making quite a lot of the girls feel quite nervous. I think what they felt was not safe. 
They also felt that in terms of political representation, nobody was listening to them. So in terms of the local MPs who they didn't really engage with, they felt that politics was not engaging with their concerns. Um, we did get the local MP who came along who was actually fantastic to talk to some of the young people. But I still think there was a kind of real disconnect in terms of their concerns. I think what we're doing now is we've regrouped and we've got groups of young people actually articulating that in a more structured way. I think at that point... Those young people were fairly unstructured in their responses and film seemed a good place to put those ideas. Um, I now feel that there needs to be more resources going into safe spaces that are actually genuinely real as well as kind of imagined spaces that provide young people with the opportunities to do work like drama and film to kind of create those messages. I think there's a very piecemeal feeling about a lot of these projects. And one of my concerns is I've tried to keep going in Rotherham to keep the the funding going all through this 10-year period. But I think one of the concerns I have is that kind of breaking up of the funding. Um, and collective communities have been fantastic because we've been able to carry on working in that field for a long time. Um, so, yeah, through the different projects, which is, I think, one of the issues about being a university researcher with a community focus is, are you doing community development work or are actually you doing research? Um, and I think with the Rotherham projects, I think we're trying to look at the lens all the time and revisit the lens, but at the same time, revisit through a kind of reflexivity how we're working with young people and then what that's teaching us. I mean, it's interesting that, um, almost ambivalence um, that surrounds the book of mm. having produced, you know, a, an academic product um, mm. that fits in with the academic tradition and is, you know, mm. published by an academic publisher, but is, is also trying to be critical of, of that system that has produced it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I've just written a paper actually um, called The University of the Imagined Other, which is trying to look at that because I think one of the things is to think, well, what are universities good for? I think they're quite good at providing thinking space for people community partners so-called or people in communities who are engaged in quite complex work and I think the Rotherham projects often provided a kind of pause and a validation of ways of thinking so I've just had emails morning from Zona Brasil who's one of the community co-researchers on Imagine talking about the role of emotion in community co-research projects and I think that one of the things I felt with the book is that I had to get the book written partly to have a start to have conversation with community partners about what is our project and do we agree and sometimes we don't I've just I've had various points of being told that I'm actually my interpretations weren't correct and I think interpretive ethnography and this kind of work is always contingent and flawed but I think by having those conversations we've actually moved on in some senses in other senses we've been stalled we were some of the youth workers had to stop working with us because they were pulled up by after J report into being much more focused on the issues that, that were raised and they couldn't work with us. So I think we have to be realistic about what universities can do in communities. But I think that reflexiveness is very, very useful um, and ability to give people time and space to, to think through ideas. Um, that comment about the, the sort of the tensions in ethnography, you leave, um, I guess, the kind of substantive methodological discussion to the very end of the book. Mm, mm. which I thought was um, really interesting. And I wonder why you left methods to, to the end. And if you could say a little bit more actually about um, the methodological choices underpinning the book. 
Yeah, I think I left Memphis to the end because I wanted it to be a book about Rotherham and about Hoggart, and then I realised that the Memphis actually were what had created it. I'm still really, really interested in that mix of hermeneutic and social, the kind of Stuart Hall challenge and um, a kind of methodological, methodological slant that was simultaneously quite rigorously attached to empirical fieldwork and ethnography, but at the same time was co-constructing a lens. So I've just written a paper thinking about the intersection between kind of collaborative ethnography and relational arts practice, seeing methods of dialogic. And I think part of what I'm trying to do in the methods chapter is open up a space, and perhaps that is where I'm going next, where I can kind of critically look at whether methods and their practices have something to offer this kind of work. So John Law's point about methods being messy and constructing the field is one that I've always held on to. At the same time, I do think the methods chapter is telling us that in order to do this work, there is a kind of counter practice that then unpacks causality in different ways, which is that returning to the field, longitudinalness, and a kind of understanding of both meaning and structure in a kind of Bourdieuian sense. So the idea from Bourdieu of reflexive objectivity, of kind of looking at your own methods, is really what I was doing in that chapter. And I suppose I wanted to look at them critically and think, well, we think that's kind of what you do when you're an academic, but really what, what do methods provide to the projects in Rotherham, what what do those methodological attentivenesses do by looking closely, by writing field notes, by having conversations, by discussing interpretations and analysis? What does that add to the field? So I'm still very sceptical about methods, but at the same time I actually think it's probably one of the things I'm going to do next is work on methods, particularly around film and co-production. I sort of feel like that was the beginning of the next stage, actually. The, the, the final thing in this is the penultimate chapter before you start talking about methods is this question about seeing the future um and and that might be a good way to to begin to conclude our discussion about the book about how do we see the future through meaning making practices i mean i think one of the things that i work very strongly uh, with is um working with johan siebers who's a scholar of um, blog is this idea of hope and utopia as method and the good thing about working with hope and utopia um is that the concept of the better imagined future is located in the present and in the everyday. And one of the nice things about working through young, with young people's work is that it's almost there as if worlds are already there in the everyday. And when I do an analysis of young people's texts, we're doing poetry at the moment with a group of young British Asian girls, the future is really um, present in, in the present. And I, I kind of like that. I like the, I like the future as a kind of... Kerry Facer writes about the future as this space where it's there now and it's almost like um, it's the otherwiseness. And I suppose my ethnography is always about the other lens, the otherwiseness, the kind of difference, the things that we don't spot. And that's where the future is. It's, it's, it's that unknown, messy bit, the kind of curving out of people's meaning-making. So I really like working in the future because it's, it's, it's the open space um, and it's where young people offer alternatives and don't do what you expect them to do. And I just think it's um, Kerry and Johan really helped me see it's a useful lens from which to do work from um, and hope is a useful lens from which to develop and understand what people are trying to say. 
yeah, I, I guess particularly in a in a place that um, in British sort of popular media um, and more broadly um, British cultural representations is really strongly framed through its past. Mm, exactly. Uh, and exactly. and is, is almost kind of never addressed in terms of it, its future, despite, you know, the work you've done with the young people and, and the communities yeah. living there. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, we're certainly strongly working with futures at the moment in Rotherham and the future orientations of the young people is we just about to find some money to do a film. Um, a group of um, Pakistani heritage girls want to make a film about imagining a different community in Rotherham. And I can see that they're going to make an amazing film. Um, it would really surprise people because actually it's going to be much more positive at the same time as being... Um, extremely clear about what it feels like to experience racist abuse on a daily, daily level. But at the same time, the, the, there is a very strong vision there. And I think part of it is to recognise that media constructions of identity and culture and agency are constantly being undermined by meaning-making practices that are bubbling up in these spaces. And that's what I'm really excited about in my work. In, in terms of that, that final point then, and you mentioned kind of doing work on methods... Um, and trying to get funding for a film. What what are the next plans? Is the next book going to be a methods thing? Are you planning to just write papers? Are you going to move into to film for a while? How how is the kind of um, the future of your work shaping up? Yeah, well, I've just written a paper which I'm nervously looking at called "The University is the Imagined Other." So I think oh, yes, yes. that's the paper that is the end chapter that extended. And then I'm actually have put in a bid proposal with Steve Poole, who's community artist, filmmaker, person, to rethink film and co-production because I just felt that really wasn't theorised enough in the book. And so I have put in a bit to um, a kind of methods call, which is really about methods. And I think what I'd like to do also is explore co-productions and methodology, but with different lenses. So working with people, I mean, this um, bit is... Well, it's under consideration at the moment, so I probably shouldn't talk about it, but it's more to do with kind of how, what different methods help co-production um, and where can you go with the idea of co-production. So I think that's something I'm really interested in. At the same time, I'd quite like to go back to Rotherham and do something which helped Rotherham. Um, and I think I'm working closely with DCLG at the moment to think about the role of arts and culture in community cohesion, but kind of maybe develop a bit around those dialogic, relational, ethnographic methods, but work again with a team of community co-researchers to think through the role of culture and the arts within community cohesion. So there's some sort of practical work, but also some methodological work. And then long-term, I'd like to write a methods book um, at the end of that, thinking through those issues. Um, I still feel that's unfinished, um, and I think film is where it's particularly unfinished. We're about to write a chapter for a book that Sarita Malik's editing on film, and I think we're just going to push ourselves to think about film. I'm quite bad at thinking about film because I get stuck in film theory from the mid-80s, particularly feminist film theory, and I think I've just got to move myself forward a bit, um, and that's where I feel unfinished and where I'd like to work more. And I suppose that the challenge is keeping um as, as you do um in materializing literacies and communities mm. keeping the relationship between practical being in know if we call it the field but being in a place mm-hmm. then the kind of um work you've been talking about in terms of um say john law's work around social life of methods and these you know demands for funding and, and projects mm. and mm. and stuff like that so 
Mm. It, it's it's quite a challenge, I think. Yeah, and I think I've been lucky in receiving quite a lot of funding, but at the same time, I think there's a really important space for reflection, and I think it's balancing those things out and also making what you're doing useful to other people. So it's actually, writing is quite important. We're also trying to write a book called Reimagining Rotherham with the community partners about the Imagine Project, and that's been incredibly contested because everyone has different visions about what Reimagining Rotherham could be. And we're just having a meeting on um, next week about it. And I can see that there isn't going to be one clear vision, but there's going to be lots of different visions which have to be collected together. So it's also recognising that it's quite a fractured field, but I think we're trying to do something hopeful in that space. Great. Good luck with that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. I was talking to Kate Paul about materialising literacies in communities, the uses of literacy revisited, which was published by Bloomsbury in 2014.